this is not all about you. When you hold back and you don't play big, whatever that means to you, or you're burning out or you're procrastinating or with all the different ways we are impostered or manifest itself, there are costs and consequences that go beyond you. Yeah, costly to you, but everyone loses when bright people like yourself mm-hmm. play small. I'm Prati Mehra, and this is Beyond the Goals podcast. It's my attempt to help you revel in all that life has to offer without pressing pause on your hustle. We learn how to create healthier relationships, a healthier lifestyle, a career that brings us true joy, and a life that satisfies us on every level. Forget the conventional ideas of success and happiness, because we're going to live a life of value and create an impact that speaks to our place in the world. So let's get started. Hello and welcome back to Beyond the Goals podcast. This is episode 7 and today we're discussing imposter syndrome. Now before we go any further, for those of us unfamiliar with the term imposter syndrome or imposter phenomenon refers to this belief that you are not enough, not good enough, not competent enough and this very constant self-doubt remains even if your life experiences are testament to high intelligence with focus, talent, because when you suffer from this feeling of being an imposter, it won't matter to you. It won't matter what your external life experiences are telling you, because this internal self-dialogue is so crippling and it is so deafening that you will completely disregard all your achievements and you'll keep focusing on this idea that somehow you only got where you are by luck, by sheer chance. Now, imagine living your life feeling like that. You could be ticking off goal after goal, doing a great job on all fronts and still have massive stress. It makes it impossible for you to enjoy the good you do or achieve in life. So you can understand why this is a very, very important topic of discussion. And because it's so important, it deserves an expert with years of experience dealing with this issue. So today's guest, Dr. Valerie Young, is an imposter syndrome expert, award-winning author, and an inspiring speaker. We discuss all aspects of the imposter phenomenon, imposter syndrome. We talk about uh, whether there are any particular personality types more prone to imposter syndrome, how our childhood experiences contribute to this feeling, the mental setup of a non-imposter, And thankfully, we also discussed some very practical steps that we can take to manage imposter syndrome in an effective way so that it doesn't get in the way of uh, your success or living a healthy, happy life. I started this podcast was because I feel like even people who have achieved a lot and in fact have achieved everything they thought they needed to achieve uh, by a certain age, are still dissatisfied with their life. They have anxiety, depression. Uh, And I think imposter syndrome might be a big reason for that because when we feel like a fraud, when we feel like what we have achieved, we didn't quite achieve it because we're actually good at what we do. We are constantly driven to keep going and maybe, you know, make a bigger breakthrough, achieve something more, something that's more public perhaps. So I think um, that's one of the reasons why I was so... um, determined to have this episode and obviously there's no one you know better to talk about imposter syndrome than you okay uh, so if if it's okay i would like to start 
uh, with how you came across this term first. That's a very, I'm, I'm familiar with the story. I've read it on the website and heard it in your interviews. It's a humorous story, but I think it's very reflective of how deep the, the imposter syndrome goes. How deep yeah. The, yeah, sure. So. Absolutely. Well, the first time uh, I even knew there was something called the imposter phenomenon, as it is more accurately known in the world of psychology. I was probably around 21 years old. I was in a doctoral program at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst uh, here in the U.S., and someone brought in a paper, another student, called The Imposter Phenomenon Amongst High-Achieving Women by Dr. Pauline Clance and Dr. Suzanne Imes. Those are the two psychologists who first coined the term The Imposter Phenomenon. So the student says, you know, look at this research paper. You know, they find that all these, you know, intelligent, capable People feel like they're fooling folks and that they're going to be found out. And I just sat there, you know, nodding my head like a bobblehead doll going, oh, my God, that's me. And then I looked around the room and all the other doctoral students were nodding their head. And this was stunning to me. This is remarkable because I knew their work. I knew they deserved to be there. So the the rest of that story uh, is that we started a little imposter support group. We started meeting after class, talking about our intellectual fraudulence, how we're fooling all of our professors, and everything went great for about three weeks. And about three weeks into our group, I started to have this nagging sense that even though everyone else was saying they were an imposter, <laughs> I knew I was the only real imposter. So they were clearly phony imposters. And when I do speaking engagements, uh, Cardi, I always tell that story because I know there are people sitting there looking around and saying, oh, yeah, yeah, they say they are, but I really am. So they're like a super imposter. I think this one issue is quite unique because most psychological issues you have, most uh, such challenges you have are resolved when you share them, or at least, you know, the impact is lessened when you share them, except for where imposter phenomenon, as uh, you know, as you call it, 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 I think that's different with imposter uh, syndrome. I think you don't feel that way, even when you share it, because that's how pervasive it is. I mean, I think talking about it is a very important first step, but a lot of people get stuck there. You know, there are people who spent really years going to talk to a therapist or just talking to their friends or their other students or their, you know, family over and over and saying, okay, this is the big one. You know, this is the one where I'm going to it's going to bomb. I'm going to be terrible. You know, all the other presentations were great, but no, no, you don't understand. This is the one I'm going to fail the exam. And after a while, nobody wants to listen to you, number one, but also talking about it doesn't help. I always tell people, you can't share your way out of imposter syndrome. It's a, it's a step, but it's just a first step. Right. And, you know, you've spent so much time studying it and you've done it with all both genders and you've studied it yeah. across uh, different uh, job fields. So it made me wonder if you've ever noticed that there are certain personality types uh, that are more prone to suffering from imposter syndrome or perhaps certain life experiences that lead to, you know, this feeling when you grow up and regardless sure. of what your achievements are. Certainly, if you are prone to being a perfectionist, then you're going to be more susceptible to imposter syndrome because nothing can ever be perfect 100% of the time. So there's always going to be room for disappointment and for feeling like you haven't, you know, completely um, lived up to your ridiculously high standard and expectation for you know perfection um, with ease. So, you know, people who are perfectionists are more susceptible 
But so often when people talk about imposter syndrome, they really limit it to that view of competence when there's other ways that uh, people view competence that contribute to imposter feelings, like the expert, the person I call the natural genius, the soloist, uh, the superman, superwoman, which we, which we can talk about. But you also asked if there are certain um, backgrounds, did you say, or yes, groups? Yes, childhood experiences, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I refer to it as kind of seven perfectly good reasons why someone might feel like a fraud. Okay. Because I think it's important that we put these feelings into, do more contextualizing, look at the context, instead of just always psychologizing it, right? So, so certainly messages we got growing up do come into play. So I don't know how the grading system is in India, um, but in the U.S. it would be A, B, C, D, right? A being the top. So if you're the student who came home with all A's and one B, and your family's only response was, what's that B doing there, right? You got this message that the only thing that was acceptable was perfection. You know, and for kids, praise is like oxygen, Absolutely. And so they're, they're going to keep striving to get that, that praise and you know, maybe strive to get all the A's or, or feel like it's ne- they're never good enough. Um, another student might come home with all A's, excellent grades, and get no praise at all. And there's lots okay. of reasons why a, a parent might not praise a child for academic achievement. It may be cultural. It may be just expected. Well, you always do well. What, it's hardly worth mentioning. We just expect you to get all A's. Uh, maybe there's other children, other siblings struggling academically. They don't want to make it seem like you're more loved or special, or they don't want you to get too addicted to the praise. I mean, there's many reasons, but again, for for kids, praise is like oxygen. Um, And then some kids get too much oxygen, right? Where they're told everything they do is remarkable. So then it's hard to sort out, you know, kind of good from great from average as they get older. But, But family messages from teachers and parents is only one piece, right? We weren't all raised by the same family. We didn't all get the same messages. So there's more going on. So for example, People who work alone, whether it's a, uh, you have your own business that you work alone, you're a solo practitioner, you're an artist, or um, now with so many people with COVID working remotely, I'm finding so many more people are feeling imposter feelings because they're working in isolation, even if they're on a team. Um, sometimes uh, being a student all by itself, especially being getting an advanced degree, almost by definition, you're going to have imposter feelings. You know, you're surrounded by highly educated people, um, and now you're supposed to be this scholar. Um, Certain organizational cultures can fuel self-doubt. Medicine, uh, for example, universities, people in STEM fields, in rapidly changing um, and uh, very information-dense fields like STEM, especially technology. You see a lot more people who feel like imposters. And then you add to it, maybe you're the first generation in your family to go to university or become a professional, or maybe you're the only woman or the only racial minority, or you're the youngest person, or you're the oldest person, you know, and in different ways, there's stereotypes around competence where you feel underestimated based on being a woman or being older or whatever it might be. So there's many factors And that's why I think it's very important to not just think it's me, but to look around and go, well, I'm in a creative field. 
you know, people in creative fields are much more likely to feel like an imposter. Or I'm a student. Of course, I feel stupid. I'm here to learn, right? I'm going to feel stupid. So I think it's important to understand those sources. Right. Uh, Now I have so many questions (laughs) is what you just uh, explained. Uh, Why is it that, you know, women are more uh, prone to feeling this way than men? I think it's a combination of external factors, uh, you know, historically and currently uh, assumptions about competence, you know, even by people who feel like they are well-educated and sophisticated on these issues will look at two resumes. And if it's a woman's name or if it's a man's name, the exact same resume, and they will judge them differently. I mean, there are many, many studies that find this also about race. Um, you know, so I think there's this expectation that there was a study uh, it was um, two Swedish immunologists were wondering why are women getting more PhDs in the sciences, uh, but they're not getting these prestigious grants proportional to the male applicants. So they went to the Swedish Medical Council and they wanted to look at the peer review process, peers reviewing papers to decide on grants. It took two years and a court order because they were convinced it was a meritocracy, we're gender blind. But when they pulled back the curtain, what they found shocked the overwhelmingly male scientific community. The women didn't have to be twice as good. They had to be 2.5 times as productive in their research uh, and, you know, and, and papers and so on to get the exact same score um, as the men. There's many studies like that. So I think it's that okay. external um, perceptions, which it's easy to internalize. But I also think that women, um, and we're generalizing, right? You can't say all women think this way or do that, or all men think this way and do that. But I think women as a group, they take uh, constructive criticism more personally. You know, we let it mean more about who we are as a person. So if someone said to me, Krati, boy, your um, report was inadequate, or that podcast you did was inadequate, what we hear is, I'm inadequate. You know, we let it mean more about kind of who we are as a person. And I think maybe it's because not having as much history with sports and learning to kind of let things roll off us more. Uh, There are some people who would say there's some brain research that women, both sides of their brain are talking to each other more. So they're processing, you know, more information. I I don't know. Um, But I think as a group, you know, women are more susceptible. But that said, there are a lot of men, a lot of men who painfully experience uh, imposter okay. feeling. Okay. So many factors working against us. I think which uh, leads me to this question that when I was doing my master's, I uh, did not recognize that I was suffering from imposter syndrome or that I had, or I was feeling like a fraud, but I never at any point did I pause to think that, oh, you know what, this is what's going on. And it right. impacted my performance very yeah. badly. Yeah. But the thing is, I, I was aware of it. I was aware of imposter phenomenon, but I didn't recognize it in myself. I just thought, no, no, I am. I really am a fraud. Right, right. So how can we, you know, get people to step back and really analyze what's going on? Is there a tool they can use? Is there some process they can follow so that they can objectively analyze themselves and recognize that, you know what, there's something amiss here and we can fix it? Um. There's not a tool that I'm aware of, but let, I'm going to back up for a minute because you said it, neg- it it impacted your performance when you when you were a yes. master's student. How did 
your imposter feelings impact your performance from your perspective? Because already my I was doing MSc economics, the, already the course was so challenging. And along with that, now I'm struggling, I'm constantly struggling with this crippling insecurity. And even when I'm doing well, I constantly feel the pressure that, oh, okay, maybe I did well in this test, only okay. because I had help, I'm not going to do so well in the And right. that just made things so much more difficult. I'm juggling so yeah. many things. And then there's this whole other thing going on inside. It, sure. it just became impossible to balance things. Right. So you're not able to enjoy it right. when you do well yes. because you're yes. dismissing it, and which is what people who feel like imposters do. You know, there is all this concrete, tangible evidence that says you are intelligent, capable, competent, uh, whether it's grades or examinations or getting into school or starting a business and or getting your art into a gallery or being promoted in an organization, or whatever it might be, the evidence exists. What happens, those of us who've had imposter feelings, basically we say, well, sure, I did it, but I can explain all that. You know, I had a lot of help. Yes. I had a good teacher. I had a good coach. Um, They just like me. That's why they said it was a great presentation. Uh, I was in the right time at the right place. I, I got a lucky break. I had connections, which guess what? Maybe you did. And here's the thing, timing, connections, personality, all of these factors to some extent can play a role in everyone's success. It's what we do with it that counts. I mean, two people could have amazing connections. One goes much farther. It's because that person, you know, maybe worked harder, put in more effort, whatever it might have been. There's a lot of people who came from very advantageous um, family connections and failed to rise to their potential. There are people every day who meet someone at a conference. So their timing was perfect. They made this amazing connection, but they didn't follow up right. or they didn't follow through. So they, they're not as successful as the next person. So it's what you do with these things that really matter. So very often, you know, you see advice like make a list of your accomplishments or get out your CV or resume and every so often look at it or keep a drawer with all your positive letters. And that's great. I don't knock that. I think that's a first step. The problem is we often then dismiss those and we explain them away. So you want to step back and say, yeah, guess what? Maybe I did have a connection. So, But what did I do to follow through on that? Okay. Because a connection will get your foot in the door. You know, it might help you get the job or the promotion or what have you. But once you're there, you have to deliver um, the goods. Okay. So that, that can help. Um, you know, you talked about the anxiety. Yes. Uh, and anxiety, you know, I mean, it, it, all that stress, people go, oh, it's just stress. Stress kills people. <laughs> stress impacts performance. Yes. Right. Think about two people competing athletically. One is completely stressed out. The other one is, you know, they have a appropriate amount of nervous energy. Right. One right. is going to do better than the other. Um, but the reason I was asking you that question is people often focus on imposter syndrome as being a feeling. Mm-hmm. But it's not just an interesting self-help topic. I mean, I speak to major companies, you know, Google. Facebook, Microsoft, IBM, Boeing, Procter & Gamble, NASA, you know, National Cancer Institute, you know, huge organizations with very bright, competent people in them. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why I was telling you that story. There was a reason. Why was I telling you that story? 
what were we talking about <laughs> we were talking about being able to recognize the were suffering from imposter syndrome and about stress the, that follows yeah that's that it <laughs> <laughs> I had a thought, but let me tell you something right now. Oh, I know. The in, the reason why I speak at these big companies is not because it's an interesting self-help topic. It's because they recognize that feelings translate into behaviors. Right. And that behaviors have costs not just for you as an individual or the individual employee, but for the organization as well. But I want to stop for a minute because what just happened is I lost my train of thought. <laughs> okay. Right? Yes. Now, most people, they would, you know, they would walk away from something like this and be, be so upset with themselves, right? And they might beat themselves up. Oh my God, I made a fool of myself. I lost my train of thought. Part of learning to think like a non-imposter, develop a healthy response to competent, competence is to be able to do what I tried to model, which is to laugh it off. Right. Okay. It's like, guess what? lost my train of thought. I had to ask you where I was, got back on track. Everyone's fine. No one stopped listening to the podcast. No one said, I'm not listening to that woman one minute longer. I mean, maybe they are. And that's, that's up to them. But not because, not because I lost my train Mm -hmm. of thought. We have to do a lot more putting these things into perspective and just having more of a sense of humor about normal things that we've all done before. Right. So not maybe not taking yourself so seriously all the time could help. Absolutely. Um, I forget who said it, but it's something like she who laughs laughs. Okay. Right? So if you, <laughs> <That's>, uh, <laughs> uh, the great Bugs Bunny, the, the Bugs Bunny, the, the cartoon character said, don't take life too seriously. You'll never get out alive. <laughs> so sometimes the best thing you can do is just laugh and, and move on. And, and I think it helps put other people at ease too. That's true. That is true. Uh, but, but, you know, it, I read this article uh, on imposter syndrome that said that because women so often suffer from imposter syndrome, uh, there, it's an, it is actually an asset for them because it makes them proactive. It makes them work twice as hard and they're taking and to me, it just seems like, you know, what we just talked about, the stress is so, right. so bad that how could it possibly right. be an asset, right? Right. Have just you- what I want to do. What, just what I want to do. I'm already like burning out. Now I got to work twice as hard. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and I've heard that before, you know, that it's an asset. A lot of men say that too, because it does, it, men very often, again, I'm just making a generalization, but a lot of men talk about how they use it to fuel them, mm-hmm. to like, work even harder. And I look at it like there's a lot of things that I would like to fuel me to work harder. Feeling inept and being a f- trying to outrun the no talent police is not the thing I want to right. be the driving force for me. So I you know I understand when people say the flip side of it is that it you know it helps you work harder and all that but I'm not a big fan of you know that school of thought. Mm-hmm. Right. And is there anything that parents can do when they can, because, you know, they say that our childhood experiences translate to what we do as an adult. So is there anything that parents can do to help their children avoid this feeling as an adult? Yeah. And I'm not a childhood expert. There's a wonderful book called The Gift of Failure, okay. which I do recommend all parents read, okay. uh, especially if you're a high achieving parent, because you might drive your kids yeah. you know, to be high achieving too, or 
you know, in some families, we all define success differently, right? And right. in one family, it might be all of my kids are going to finish high school and I'll feel like I've done a good mm-hmm. job. Mm-hmm. In another family, it might be all of my kids are going to go um, to college. Mm-hmm. In another family, it's not just go to university, they have to go to the right university. Right. In another family, they have to go to the right university and get the right degree. Usually engineering, maybe law, medicine, but they're not sending you to Stanford to major in dance, um, at least in their mind, right? Um, in, in another family, it might have nothing to do with academics. It's going into the family business. It's going into the military because that's the family tradition or producing grandchildren. Right. We don't care how many degrees you have. Where are the grandchildren? You know, <laughs> So <laughs> you have to look at like, how was success defined in my family? And given that definition, do I feel like I've exceeded my family's expectation, which can be complicated? Have I fallen short or just kind of hit it right on the head? Um, You know, is is the expectation to get all A's, to do everything perfectly, to be involved in all these extracurricular activities, which can be very stressful for young people. Yes, you want to give people challenges, but you want them to to learn resiliency. You want them to learn from setbacks and difficulty and failure. And so that's why I like that book, The Gift of Failure, because she talks about it as a parent. As a parent, when your child is struggling, you want to do this. You want to say this, but here's what you should say and do to help them figure out things themselves, figure out what went wrong, how to do it differently next time. Because otherwise they get to university or they get further in their professional career and they're going to hit a setback. They're going to hit failure at some time and they're not going to know what to do with it. And they're going to get anxious and depressed and they're going to think there's something wrong with them. Right. That makes sense, actually, because I think a lot of Parents do try to, as you said, too much praise, too little praise, both are a problem. And parents try to balance Mm -hmm. things. But it, and we also have to consider that the parent themselves might be suffering from this feeling as well. And then it could, might just be, you know, impossible to protect your child from it. Right. Or, you know, they were raised by humans too. Right. And then their human parents were also raised by humans, you know, all down the line. And I think especially, and you see this a lot in the U.S., immigrant parents, they do push their kids often to get all A's and to excel because that's part of the, often the immigrant experience is trying to help the kids create a better life than they had. Right. And so I think in all cases, your parents are trying to do the best they can. Yes, absolutely. But sometimes the, the, the result might not be as helpful as they think it is to, to the child. Yes. I, I see a lot of high achievers doing their, their children's homework <laughs> yes, you know, and help giving them the answer and helping them. And that is not at all helpful. No, no, it's not. I think what you said is absolutely true because I think all parents want their kid to have a better life than they did. You know, yeah. I think, yeah. uh, and that's something I notice a lot in homemakers, uh, women who don't mm-hmm. work outside their families, don't yeah. think they ever do enough. When I think that is 
just so wrong because I think they do so much more. It's not that I think all women are doing their best, but a homemaker is solely focused on a home and creating a, the perfect home environment. I think that's that's the right the biggest challenge a woman could or a man could face right. in their life. Yeah. So I, I, what would you suggest for homemakers? How can they? Because I have had sessions with people like that, and I've told them that maybe if you feel the need to have an external achievement that is not connected to your family, maybe do that. But somehow it doesn't feel enough. So is there something you would recommend to homemakers specifically to, you know, so that yeah. they feel like they're contributing in a way that satisfies their own need to feel, you know, to feel validated? Yeah. yeah. You know, I think it's so hard for, for you know, uh, um stay-at-home mothers, homemakers, because as a profession, it's not valued in the culture. Right, right. You know, we give lip service to it, mm-hmm. but, I mean, just think about childbirth. Yes. You know, we think, like, women are more risk-averse. Women die every day all over the world mm-hmm. from delivering children, right? Right. If men did that, we'd have statues erected to men who died in the line of duty, you know, <laughs> but we just take it for granted. Um, there was a, there's a, a humorist who wrote in a, in a newspaper, uh, Dave Barry here that said, if there was, if men did housework, mm-hmm. there'd be conferences on it. There'd be award ceremonies, you know, it would be like elevated to this like high level. <laughs> so i think you know if you added up the dollar value of what it would cost to have somebody come in and perform all the functions that someone is caring for children and the home you know it would be pretty costly um to do that and i think especially for you know for parents is that well even if you don't have children but you know you you're comparing yourself to other people in social media Right. Who make it look like their kids are perfect, their their house is spotless. You see these magazines that just look like, you know, you should be preparing these gourmet meals and, you know, everything is spotless. I had an electrician come to my house to do some work. And I said, John, when you go to a man's house, does he ever apologize when the house is messy? And he said, never. <laughs> but I, I have. Oh, I'm sorry. It's a mess around here. I've got all this stuff going on. Like, he doesn't care. Right. But we're just judging ourselves so harshly on these yes. things. That's, that was brilliant. <laughs> yeah. I think you have just summed up every woman's emotions on the topic. <laughs> So, you know, uh, I think what happens is that regardless of what our accomplishments are, what our achievements are, when we feel like a fraud, I think, as you said, we never pause to enjoy what we have already achieved, which leads to, I think, a bigger issue. We get we tend to get detached from our physical and mental uh, health. There is very little self-care you know, in the mm-hmm. lives of people who suffer from uh, the imposter phenomena. And yeah. how how can we help them? I mean, you can feel a fraud, but you can still find enough value in yourself to take care, to take better care of your well-being. So is, yep. there, yeah, is there something that we can do, with, uh, you know, apart from creating awareness? Yeah, yeah I think a little things we can do is when we do achieve something, right. you know, large or small, is to just take a moment, depending on the achievement, a big moment and to celebrate that and to acknowledge it. We just quickly go on to the next thing right. without stepping back to say, you know, good job. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, when I, um, 
I got a very big book deal with Random House, which I felt very fortunate. Right. And when I finished the book, regardless of how the book did, I this iPhones had just come out and they were like $600. And that was a lot of money. They had just come out. I was like, I'm getting myself an iPhone. You know, like no matter what happened with the book, I wanted to do something that said, you did it, you finished, (laughs) and to mark that occasion. So I think we can do that. But I would also more than that, I would tell people to be realistic on your expectations. My expectation is not that I will never feel like an imposter again. If that's your goal, you're going to probably be disappointed. I mean, if that happens, that's great. But you might do a lot of work and change your thinking and start feeling less like an imposter. And then one day something happens, like a very big opportunity or big limelight, and suddenly those feelings come up again. You think, oh, no, I'm a hopeless case. You know, I, I thought I was over it, but I'm not. If you can understand that it's not about never feeling like an imposter again, mm-hmm. it's about having the information, it's about having the insight and the tools So when you have a normal imposter moment, Mm -hmm. you can talk yourself down faster. Right. Okay. That's the key. You know, so I I had an experience. You said you saw that six minute TED talk that I did. Yes. Yes. First of all, six minutes is hard to do. I'd rather do 18 minutes because six minutes of beginning and a middle. And that's how much time we were given six minutes. We went to TED headquarters. They picked 12 people. We'd all sent in a one minute video. They picked 12 people out of, I don't know, hundreds of thousands. I don't know how many videos, but I, so I was honored to be one of the 12. We're at TED headquarters doing it in front of other TED speakers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was the most stressful thing I'd ever done in my life. And I was talking about something that I was very familiar with, right. but I'd never done it in that order. You know, mm-hmm. so I, I, I worked hard writing it and you have to give it to TED ahead of time and they give you feedback. And then I timed it over and over. I mean, I got a hotel room in New York and I just, with my timer, I just timed it over and over and over and over because uh, I wanted to make hit my six minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I worked really hard. I wanted to leave the stage feeling, you know, you know what it feels like when you feel like nailed it, right? right. Like you just know, like I crushed it. I know what that feels like. I didn't feel that way. I forgot my train of thought in that talk. I forgot my place and I threw in something about they 70% of people have these feelings that wasn't in my talk, but I just said something and then I got back on track. Now, another guy, he got up there. He forgot his place for like three minutes. Oh God. In a six minutes. But they edit that out. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, but they edit that out, you know, (laughs) but that had to be really stressful. Yeah. But my point is, I left, like anybody watching that would go, oh, you know, you did a good job. Okay, John. I didn't feel that way. Um, Because I was, I was, it was very, I was very anxious. The people in the front row, I could reach out and touch them. So I wasn't used to people sitting so close to me. Right. The lights were really bright. You know, it was just a very intense, big cameras. It was a very intense, you know, atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Now I'll do better the next time because now I know what to expect. Right. Um, but I was disappointed. And so the point that I'm making is you can be, people go, oh, you, you felt like an imposter. It's like, no, I didn't feel like an imposter. I was disappointed because of how hard I worked. I wanted to feel differently. But like, it took me about 24 hours to say, you know what? Good enough. Mm-hmm. And 
good for you for even, you know, how many people on the planet even get to go to head, TED headquarters and do a six minute talk. But it took me 24 hours to get perspective. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Give yourself a break. Sometimes it takes time to get perspective. Right. So maybe framing things better and giving yourself permission to mess up and then gaining perspective on what you have achieved despite having messed up, right? Yeah, and what you do differently. You know, in engineering or science, it's failure analysis. Right, right. So like one thing I will do differently next time, I actually was working with a, a coach, a very, very successful speaker who's very blunt. He's very direct with his feedback, which is what I like. So I sent him the video and I told him I was disappointed. And he wrote back. He said, yeah, you've been better. (laughs) And he's right. He's like, you've been better. He said, here's the thing. He said, you wanted it too much. You practiced too hard. He said, next time, just relax and have fun. What's the worst thing that can happen? So next time when I get on stage, I will smile. I didn't smile when I got on stage because it was so intense. I didn't feel like smiling at the moment. I was like, holy cow, right? But next time I will walk up and smile and just smiling will, will make you, set you more at ease. Like little things like that. Little things you can do. If you're on the phone with somebody, you're having, it's harder with Zoom, right? But if you're on the phone, standing up while you're talking will help you feel more confident and smiling, even though you're not saying anything funny, you know? It, it will give you more inflection in your voice and it kind of helps with confidence. So there's like little things you can do as well. Right. But as an audience member, I did not notice anything wrong with that talk. It was one of the most subtle and uh, funny talks that I've heard. <laughs> it was very oh, enjoyable. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. I, I appreciate that. But that's why I tell people that story because I want them to know that there was little, you know, glitch. Yes. But it's like what you, it's what you do with setbacks and, Okay. difficulty that matter not that they're not going to happen so instead of spiraling maybe just taking away information from those moments of doubt and mm-hmm. taking action instead of just you know drowning in self-doubt could help yep. okay well that and i think we also need to step back i don't have the whole thing uh, memorized but in, in my talks i share a story of this woman in the u.s named betty Rollins. she was a television news correspondent mm-hmm. on the NBC network, which is one of the big, there was at the time there were only three networks and four networks in the U S and that was a big one. She was a correspondent and she wrote this column in the New York times called chronic self doubt. Why does it afflict so many women? Right. And in it, she talked about her whole professional life, having this, I'm in over my head and they're going to find out feeling. And she wondered if other people felt the same way too. So she went to a producer who she said, by the way, was as competent as he thought he was. And the exchange went something like this. You know, Bob, when you're working on a big story, do you ever worry that it's going to blow up and fail? It's like, sure, you know, merrily. right? And she said, well, if it did blow up, would you blame yourself? And he said, no, sounding very sure. Okay. And she said, why not? And he said, well, aren't I entitled to make a mistake once in a while? And I remember reading that line over and over and over because, frankly, that was new information to me. I think it's new information, especially to women and to people who like imposters generally. But when you think about it, if you knew you're entitled to make a mistake once in a while, not all the time. If you're making a mistake all the time, you're in the wrong field or you need more training or more practice. But make a mistake once in a while. Have an off day. 
not know the answer, ask for help, struggle to master something, there'd be nothing to feel like an imposter about. Right. You know, what you said, that story, that's actually, that's very powerful. That has a very powerful message in it that you are entitled to make a mistake every once in a while. But not not a lot of people give themselves that permission because I think even people who have achieved a lot and uh, th- there was this talk by Elizabeth Gilbert and she said when she released Eat, Pray, Love, it was such a huge hit that everyone mm-hmm. started asking her, how are you going to follow this? How are you? Oh, I know. Yeah. That's such a huge challenge. And even, you know, you're that accomplished and you've influenced so many lives already. Now, suddenly the pressure is doubled instead of letting you have a moment to bask in the glory. Now you're feeling like, so there's already that feeling of being a fraud. Now there's like, okay, well, I can't do any better than this. So I, I, I don't know. How do you talk yourself out of that, that maze of insanity? Well, I think it's recognizing that, um, whenever you have, you know, a, a very early success, right. it's going to be more challenging because there's, there's that pressure to repeat that, whether it's a film or a book or discovery or whatever it might be, there's that pressure to represent, to, to, to replicate it. And you don't half the time, you don't know how you did it the first time, right? You know, how could you possibly do it again? So I think to acknowledge that, this happens to other people. All she can do is the best she can, you know, because you're only as good as your last book, your last performance. I mean, that's why people in creative fields, writers, actors, they're more susceptible to imposter syndrome because we do hold them to that standard. Yes. You know, but you can't, you're not going to win an Academy Award every time you make a film. Right. And I think sports can be very useful analogy for people who feel like imposters because Sometimes what happens to people with imposter syndrome is something goes wrong or the business, you know, struggles starting out or we fail or our first presentation bombs or whatever it might be. We fail a class and we just drop out of school. Mm -hmm. Um, We fail, you know, we, we just leave. And that's one strategy of coping of just like, you know, not finishing or never starting, you know, the book, the painting, but if you if you look at sports, every time there's a competition, somebody's going to win, whether it's an individual or a team, and somebody's going to lose right. every time. Absolutely. The losing team does not hang up their uniform and go home and never play again. Right. They go watch the game tape. Yes. They look to see what went wrong. They practice more. They get more coaching. And they always say, we'll get them next time right and they go out and try again so intellectually we understand that with sports and we need to start applying that same uh, resilience um, and behaviors to to ourselves i mean they're crying in their towel on the bench if they lose right they're very disappointed again but not ashamed the only time they would feel shame is if they didn't try then yeah, shame on you as a team. Right? Right. But if they, if they gave it their best shot and they were outplayed or whatever it might've been, no shame and failure. Okay. Do you think it helps in that moment of loss? If you could just not 
feel or just feel the loss but not analyze it in that particular moment do you think that helps people or or is the wound so fresh that you have to analyze because i think when you are that vulnerable very few of us can actually you know talk in a sane manner the self dialogue yeah absolutely yeah yeah you're not it's you're in that crushingly disappointed grieving you know repetitive thinking you know, circulars thinking the same thought over and over and you're ruminating, you know. Yes. Um, yeah. So I don't think that's probably, it's probably not going to happen then until you step back and get more, you know, perspective, a little distance, but you know, you're going to feel bad. Right? right. Of course. Of course. Okay. That, that makes sense. And you know, um, this is very, the whole thing is very convoluted when you think about it, because imposter syndrome leads to us not enjoying our lives. It leads to increase in anxiety. I mean, there are so many bad things that happen to a person and there's, but it's so, so right. is there something that people who non imposters, is there something special about them that they don't go through this or, you know, something that happens, something extraordinary that happens in their childhood that they don't go through this, uh, this feeling. Yeah, it's hard to say where they get it from. Sometimes they got some really good, healthy messages around failure and setbacks and, you know, develop more resiliency. Um, it could be how they're hardwired, you know, life experiences. It, it's very hard to say why they think differently. Uh, but when you say non-imposter, it's kind of they have what I call a competence mindset, you know, where their understanding of what it means to be competent is healthy. They have a healthy response to failure, mistake-making, criticism, fear. Because truly the only difference between people who feel like imposters and people who don't, because they're no more intelligent, capable, competent than you or I. It's just in the exact same situation where we feel like an imposter with a job interview or making a presentation or, um, you know, somebody, you know, um, you know, speaking up in a meeting or starting our business or whatever it might be, that same situation, they are thinking different thoughts. And that's it, which is really good news because it means we just have to learn to think like them. And when I say think like them, it's not motivational pep talk. It's not saying you can do it and you've got this. That's only going to move the needle right. so much. People who don't feel like imposters think differently about competence. They think differently about failure, mistakes, and criticism, which I kind of put in one category. And they think differently about fear. Okay. So if we can kind of, when we're having an imposter moment, if we can we step back and become kind of consciously aware of the conversation going on in our head, and then reframe it the way we think somebody might, who does not, who has that competence mindset. Okay. How would they think about this differently? Right. So it's the difference between walking out of a meeting and saying, or getting off a Zoom call and going, oh my God, I'm so stupid. Like, why did I say that? I sounded so stupid versus I felt so stupid. Right. Very yeah. good. Be stupid, felt stupid. Guess what? We all feel stupid from time to time. You know, I always tell people, if you don't have an opportunity to feel stupid in the next 24, 48 hours, I'm scared for you because it means you're not learning. Right. Right. Or you get a big promotion and the person who feels like an imposter says, oh, my God, I have no idea what I'm doing. The non-imposter, the competence mindset thinks, wow, I've never done this before. I'm really going to learn a lot. Or I've never done this before. It's going to be a stretch and it's going to be stressful. 
but I know some people who do, and I will call them. Right? I'm, I don't know how to do it, but I'm smart enough to figure it out. Right. Okay. So, you know, they look at like when I told you about my coach, you know, I want people at this point to give me good constructive criticism. Right. And so often people get a performance review and your manager tells you five things you did well and one thing you need to work on. And you are just wounded. Yes. You know, you're crushed because you wanted it to be perfect. The, the, the person who doesn't feel like an imposter, they see constructive criticism as a gift. Even if their boss said, you were outstanding, you did everything perfectly, they would say, thank you so much. What's one thing I could have done even better? They want to keep improving and they want information to help them get better, which is what I wanted from that coach. I didn't need him to tell me I was great. I need him to tell me how I can improve. That's what I'm paying him for. Right, right. So reframing the mental dialogue that happens, you know, in the wake of a loss or a defeat. Do you think journaling would help with that if we journal and if we... Sure, absolutely. So just write down, here's the imposter thought and here's the reframe. Okay. You know, if you could call in the script writers to play the part of you in that same scene, what would they be thinking? What feelings would they have? What would they do differently? Okay. Because you want to get a picture of like, what would it be like for somebody who didn't feel like an imposter, how would they handle this exact same situation? Okay. So other tools like journaling, like reframing those mental dialogues, is there anything else you can do that would help? I always tell people to, so often we're, we wait until we feel more confident to do things. Right. Whether it's to run for political office or go for that next job or whatever it might be. And it, feelings are the last to change. That's what I want people to understand. Um, that's why you have to change your thoughts, then change your behavior. Don't wait until you feel confident, you know, do the thing, trusting you can figure it out. And if you don't know how somebody else does and you, you can learn it not easily quickly and just kind of keep going regardless of how you feel. Right. You don't have to feel confident. And the last thing I want people to know is that this is not all about you. Right. When you hold back, and you don't play big, whatever that means to you, or you're burning out, or you're procrastinating, or with all the different ways we are impostered or manifest itself, there are costs and consequences that go beyond you. Yeah, costly to you, but everyone loses when bright people like yourself mm-hmm. play small. I hope everybody makes note of that. that that's uh, powerful. Uh, is there? I know that you uh, suggested the book, The Gift of Failure, for you know parents to do better uh, for their kids. But are there any other resources that you would recommend apart from your TED Talk, your website? There, I know there, it's full of uh, material that you can learn from. But any other resource that you would recommend uh, to people? Um, you know, if you're if you're kind of a a space person, do, do you have that TV show, The Big Bang Theory? Absolutely, seen all okay. of it. All right. Well, Mike Mathamino is a NASA astronaut who was on that show a few times playing himself. Right. Uh, I got to meet Mike at Columbia University. He's now in the engineering department there. And he wrote a wonderful book called um, Spaceman about his his, the unlikely journey, you know, growing up working class kid and achieving his lifelong dream of being an astronaut. Uh, And he talked about his own imposter syndrome. Um. But when I met him, I said, you know, I read his book and then I met him. I said, Mike, I don't think you had imposter syndrome. He said, you don't? I said, no, I think you had, holy crap, I'm going into outer space in a tin can syndrome. (laughs) (laughs) And the reason I said that is his whole book is a case study in non-imposter thinking. 
when he was at MIT, right. he said the first year he did well in his master's degree in engineering. Mm-hmm. The second year, he said it kicked his ass. He got a 12 on one exam. He got an 18 on another exam. He was crushingly disappointed and he wanted to drop out. But instead, he got together with a group of students who were failing and they all helped each other study and raise their grades together. Then when he went for his PhD, he failed his qualifying exams. Again, crushingly disappointed, thought about dropping out. But he went back, he did more research, a group of friends helped him prepare for what it's like to have these professors barraging you with questions. And he, you know, succeeded, he had six months to go back and take it. His whole book is like that. So the point that I make in my in my presentations is, you know, we're all going to have adversity and setbacks That's how you handle them. Right. Um, that really matter. So looking to those role models, I think is also a very important thing to do. So his book is good if you're, you know, if you like that world. And then of course, there's my book with the horrible title, uh, The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women. I hate the title because there's a lot of men who feel like imposters, number one, but also a lot of women who by any measure are successful, don't identify with that, with the term successful. They think it means the CEO of a company or the president of a country. Mm-hmm. Um, and it could be the f- a first year student in university in a, you know, in an English major or a physics major or somebody starting their business or an artist, but we don't connect with that term. So uh, I do find a lot of men have told me that they did benefit from the book, regardless of the title. Okay. Yeah. Because I was also recommended that book by a male friend. So <laughs> I think you're worrying for nothing. Oh, <laughs> and uh, is there right. anywhere people can reach you if they want to want to share their own issues with you? Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, I don't do coaching, but but impostorsyndrome.com is my website, and it has some blog articles, and you know, certainly those might be helpful to people. I will as well. share the link. Uh, and you know, I ask this question uh, to all my guests: if there was just one tip you could give to the listeners of the show that would help them improve their life, not just with imposter syndrome with just in general, that would help them just one tip. You know, I think it's probably gonna have to go back to, you know, don't take life too seriously, you know, Bugs Bunny. (laughs) (laughs) Don't take life too seriously, you'll never get out alive. You know, the things that we when we look back, the things that we'll look back and go, why did I worry about that? Why was I so stressed out about that? Sure. You know, and to have more more joy and to lighten up, you know, in the moment. Right. Okay, I I hope everybody makes note of that. That is helpful. That was Dr. Valerie Young, and I really hope this episode helps you. If you are reeling from self-doubt day after day, I hope this episode gives you the information you need to manage uh, your mental health better, to become more confident, have more faith in your abilities. Now, if you found today's episode useful, I'll appreciate it if you'll please rate and review the show on iTunes or share it on Instagram. Remember to tag me at mehra underscore krati so that I can thank you for your time. And this will help others find the information should they need it. And it will tell me that you appreciate the content I'm sharing and what kind of content you would like to hear more of. And if there is any particular issue or concern that you would like for me to cover, reach out to me on Insta or use the contact page on my blog. Now that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you next week. Till then, take care of yourself.